scriptures uh, and turn to that text that Ben read a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and probably this morning because the scriptures are not printed on the screen. It's even more important than ever for you to pull that Bible out and turn in the script, copy of the scriptures to read along with us here as we deal with a passage of scripture as you heard it read this morning. Undoubtedly, you were thinking to yourself, where in the world will Rick go with this? I must admit to you that uh, when you commit to preaching in an expository sort of way, this is one of those texts that you really dread, because this is a text that over the centuries has been argued and debated and has uh, stirred a great deal of controversy and uh, ill feeling and has given the impression, one, that Paul is a male chauvinist, and two, that the Church of Jesus Christ is a male-dominated organization that gives no meaningful place or role to godly women to lead and to serve and to use uh, their gifts, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, for the welfare of the body of Christ. I don't believe that any of those things are true, and I hope that this morning, that as best we can, that we will endeavor, with the Spirit's help, to set aside any particular biases or presuppositions or preconceived ideas that we might have, and that we can approach the Scriptures this morning with a fresh mind and a fresh heart and seek, like good Bereans should do, to understand what the Word of God is saying, uh, not only what it said to the Corinthians when they first heard Paul's letter being read to them in the public assembly, but also over the ages what this Word of God is saying to the church in the 21st century and how it should be applied. Uh, So, I can't delay it any longer, so (laughs) let's plunge ahead. Remember what Paul is doing here. He is answering a variety of questions that have been posed to him. He'd heard a number of things. Uh, The grapevine was working then as it does now in the church, and he'd heard a number of things, some problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. In In addition to having heard some things about some unrest in the body of Christ, the Corinthian leaders, the church leaders, had also apparently sent him a missive of some sort uh, telling him uh, about some of the problems they were having in the church and looking to Paul for guidance and direction to understand what they should do. Now, remember, this is a church that Paul had planted as a missionary apostle. He had gone there to this great metropolitan city in Corinth, in Greece, and had planted this church, and he had gotten this foundly church up on its feet and growing and under godly appointed leadership, and then uh, being faithful to the call of God on his life, he moved on then uh, to, to finish his work of apostleship. But uh, as this letter had come to him with these concerns, he felt impressed by God's Spirit to respond to these. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, he's been addri- addressing a number of issues already. We've seen that he addressed the issue uh, about relational questions concerning singleness, and marriage, and divorce, and remarriage. And then we saw also, later on, in chapters 8 and following, that he'd been talking about questions 
about eating food offered up to idols and attendance uh, at idol temples and all the rest. Uh, and he is responding to those questions. Now the tone, starting at 11.1 at and working through chapter 14 and verse 40, uh, the focus of what Paul is talking about is changing, and he's looking at the worshiping life of the Corinthian church. Apparently, there were a number of problems in the worshiping life of this community of God's people. Now, you need to remember that uh, uh, the leaders at Corinth were faced with some pretty peculiar problems because uh, the church in Corinth was made up of primarily two different subgroups. The first group would have been uh, Jewish believers who had followed Old Testament Judaism, uh, the conservative, reserved, very formal kind of Judaistic worship. And they would have come with kind of those preferences and that experience and those traditions. They would have brought that with them into this newfound faith of following Jesus Christ as Messiah. Now, coupled with that, however, you have the other subset of people who were probably the other major or primary part of the Corinthian church, and that is pagan people who formerly were pagan idolaters who frequented the uh, Grecian temples, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Apollo, and, and all the other Greek gods. And their worship, Greek worship, was so unlike Jewish worship because Greek worship, while Jewish worship was rather sedate and quiet, Greek worship was anything but because it, it took on kind of the form of an orgy with food and wine uh, being devoured in vast quantities. And it was an amazing, amazing kind of wild orgy. And so can you imagine, you think that we have culture wars in worship in the 21st century. Imagine what the overseers of the church in Corinth had to deal with, with these two clashing cultures, with former Jews and these former pagan idolaters bringing their orgy-like desires into the church and trying to smooth that out. I mean, singing gospel songs versus praise music is nothing compared to the challenge that they faced in the Corinthian church. And so uh, Paul is addressing some of these worship issues. The first issue he's going to deal with today is the issue of uh, women's participation in worship. And then he's going to talk about communion and some of the practices that they followed in communion, and he's going to correct them, and we'll look at that next week. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to talk to them about their use and their abuse of spiritual gifts. And Pastor Ben and I are probably going to divide that up in four or five sermons uh, to talk about spiritual gifts and how they're to be used in the church. The three things I want us to look at today in this text are these. First of all, to understand what was going on in Corinth. Secondly, to understand what the problem was and what Paul is doing to address the problem. And then thirdly, and probably most importantly, to understand what in the world does this mean for us today? I mean, does it mean that women should be wearing veils and shawls, and that women should always have long hair and never cut their hair? Does it mean that, that uh, we should never allow a woman to participate in worship? Uh, that she should not be able to uh, lead in, in, in certain settings, in public worship setting, and, and we'll look at those particular issues, what difference any of this makes for the church in our own day. Now, please understand a couple of things. In order to understand the situation that was going on in Corinth and which Paul is addressing, you must remember 
that uh, there were some cultural things that were driving all of this. It's important to understand that in the Corinthian situation, in normal, everyday Corinthian life, that in the Corinthian culture, this is just a given, men wore their hair short and women wore their hair long. It's just the way it was. And there are hundreds and hundreds of sculptures and frescoes and pieces of pottery and, and historical evidence that, that pinpoint this and say that's the way it was in this culture and illustrate that fact. It was part of their culture for men to wear their hair short and women to wear their hair long. The other thing that you need to know is that while men wore their hair short and women their hair long, they, women did not wear their hair down in public. But instead, it was a disgrace to wear your hair down in public. A woman would always, according to Corinthian culture, would wear her hair pinned up, piled on top of her head in a bun. Now, a woman in the privacy of her own home might let her hair down, letting your hair down, ladies. Uh, but if they were to go out into public, they always wore their hair up. And it was considered disgraceful to wear your hair loose and flowing down your back. Because loose hair, here's the principle in Corinthian culture, loose hair was the sign of a loose woman. I'm not making this up. In Corinthian society... Women who were proper, women who were modest, women who wanted to make a statement publicly and visibly about their uh, adherence to culture and submission to their husbands, women who were feminine, women who were genteel in society, women who wanted to take the role that was assigned to them in their society, not only wore their hair pinned up, but wore a veil or more appropriately a shawl. It's not like the burqas that you see in Middle Eastern society where you only see the slit of a woman's eyes. More probably in Corinthians society, a woman when she went out in the streets of Corinth would have had her hair pinned up and with a shawl uh, over the top of her head. It was what gentle women did in Corinthian society. And while there are slight variations on the theme, the Corinthian culture dictated that the veil was a sign of a woman's covering her submissiveness to her husband, such that she was leaving herself unexposed to other men when she wore a veil and her hair up. She was making a statement. She was saying to the world, I belong to my husband. Hands off. Don't look at me. Don't touch me. I'm taken. I'm somebody else's. I'm not, to, I'm not here to attract myself to any other man. I'm not after anything because my husband already provides adequately for me. It's irrelevant that you even see me. I'm not interested. Thank you very much. But apparently what was happening was that a problem had cropped up in the Corinthian church. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing and that there were some women in particular who were abusing their Christian liberties. 
even as in the issue of eating meat offered up to idols. So there was apparently a group of women who were saying, hey, now that we're following Christ, we are not the law no longer governs us. We can throw our veils away. It wasn't a burn your bra event. It was a burn your veil event. Women were saying, all things are lawful. We're all one in Christ. So let's get rid of these needless traditions. Let's get rid of these head coverings. We don't need to follow these meaningless traditions any longer. And Paul says in his letter, oh, yes, you do. He says, remember, ladies, if you go through the streets with your hair down like the prostitutes and without a head covering, you will be identified with that crowd. And if you do that, you will dishonor your husband, who is your head. You'll dishonor Christ, who is your head. You'll dishonor the church. Now, another interesting thing was going on, too, in addition to this whole thing with head coverings, was hair length, and that some women, as a statement of their liberation, were cutting their long hair. They were cutting it short. Why? Because they wanted to look like men. It was a sign of their liberation and their complaint or their antagonism against what they thought were inequalities in Corinthian society, inequalities that they women found repulsive. And so they were cutting their hair short and not wearing their head coverings. And so Paul takes these verses, verses 2 through 16, and he addresses this issue and says, now wait a minute, church. We've got to look at this in a different way. And as a starting place, Paul sets out by describing three sets of relationships. First, he praises them. Isn't it interesting? It's like the one-minute manager. He gives them a one-minute praising, and then he gives them a three-chapter scolding. He praises them first, and then in verse 2, uh, he, uh, verse 3, he says, lays out three specific relationships. He says, now, verse 3, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, first relationship, and the head of woman is what? Man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, I want you to notice that Paul didn't just say, look, the man is the head of the woman and leave it at that. He didn't stop there. Had he done that, that would have changed the complexion of this passage altogether. And I understand Believe me, there's a part of me that quakes in even preaching this text, that this passage and others have been used by uh, people in the past as a club to beat down Christian women and to say that women are second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to go on record and make it very clear that I do not believe that this passage teaches that women have an unworthy role in the church of Jesus Christ. Nor does it imply that they lose their privileges by becoming Christians, therefore they have to be sit down, shut up, and don't say anything. Not at all. And I think it's for this reason that Paul presents three distinct areas of subordination that are a part of God's creation in God's kingdom. And he deals with them in this way. He says, man is subordinate to Christ 
as woman is subordinate to man, as Christ is subordinate to God. Now, I believe that there's a timeless principle here, and the principle is this, that built into, inherently designed in God's creation, there is an order of things. God is a God of order. And that in this order, He created certain levels of authority and subordination. This is a universal principle. Everything that exists in the universe is subordinate to someone. Even Jesus Himself, the Son of God, think of it, was subordinate to God the Father. And Paul's argument here uh, about propriety in worship revolves around these three subordination uh, relationships. First of all, that man is subordinate to Christ. Now, I want you to realize, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the ruler, Paul says, of all men. He is either your Savior or He is your judge. But in either case, Jesus is sovereign. He will be Lord of all. There is coming a day, Scripture says, when every knee, not just those knees that bend voluntarily, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul is making that claim here in this argument when he says, man is subordinate to Christ. Then secondly, he follows this argument out by saying in verse 3, a woman is subordinate to man. The man is the head of the woman. What does he say? I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man. And just as in the first example of subordination uh, applies universally to all men, the second aspect of the principle of subordination, I believe, applies universally to all women. And just as men are ultimately subordinate to Christ, so also women in the church are ultimately subordinate to men. And I believe that this can be found uh, throughout all of history. And despite uh, attempts, repeated attempts, to liberate, liberate women... Um, I believe that in God's design, and I know there's going to be argument about this, but in God's design, as man is subject to Christ, that woman is subordinated to man. Now, why should we fear that? Let me just speak to women for a second. Dear sisters, is there any reason why you should be afraid to surrender your rights to a man who has truly surrendered his rights and subordinated himself to Christ. If your husband, the head of your home, truly loves God and is seeking to, to serve Him with all of his heart and is a godly man, not perfect, but a godly man, seeking to become more and more like Jesus. If the head of your home is 
seeking to, to love the Lord and to love you, as Paul says in another epistle to the Ephesians, as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? Did Christ not lay His life down for the church? In self-surrender, Christ subordinated Himself to the will of the Father. Did Jesus not say, I have come to do my meat, Jesus says, is to do the will of the Father. So, dear sister, if your husband is seeking to do the will of Christ, is there any threat or any reason to worry, then, to subordinate yourself to the leadership of your husband? I think not. And I think that when we do follow God's design, that we will find the greatest joy and satisfaction. But Paul doesn't end his argument there. He continues on and says, even Christ subordinated himself to the Father. God in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God the Father, is the head of Christ the Son. As I've already said, Jesus made it very clear that he was in submission to the Father. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was anticipating the cross and the completion of redemption's plan, how he agonized in the garden. Would he follow through? Would he submit? Would he surrender to the Father's will and direction? You remember that he struggled so much with that decision that the Scriptures say he sweat drops of blood. But in the end, Jesus subordinated himself to God the Father and provides an example, a template, a model, a picture for you and I. And so the question that I ask myself here is this. Was Jesus Christ any less fulfilled because he submitted himself to the Father? Did Jesus lose anything by voluntarily accepting this subordinate position? I don't believe he lost anything at all. In fact, I think Jesus gained as a result of it because Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus made himself in the form of a servant, emptied himself of everything and became absolutely nothing and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And as a result of Jesus, listen, here's my point, Jesus subordinated himself to the will of the Father as a result of that. Do you remember what Paul argues in Philippians chapter 2? As a result of him subordinating himself to the fatherhood of God, he has been highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. So that when you surrender, I think surrender is becoming the theme of my ministry lately, when you surrender your all, Husband, when you surrender yourself to the headship of Christ. Wife, when you surrender yourself to the leadership of a godly husband. When you surrender yourself to, to God as Christ surrendered himself to the Father. There is where you find God's design and you find perfect peace. The way to fulfillment in the Christian life is through the recognition that Jesus is Lord and through submission to Christ's authority. That's what we should be about as followers of Jesus. And by the same token, the way a woman is fulfilled is not by rejecting and fighting against this principle of subordination, but instead accepting it as God's design for her life. And I believe that a woman will find her greatest 
possible fulfillment in her relationship to her husband as long, and I put this proviso on there, as long as her husband is subordinating himself to Jesus Christ. The problem comes, aye, there's the rub. The problem comes when the man is not surrendered to Christ and is not loving his wife as Christ loves the church. That sets up a whole unhealthy dynamic. Men, you should be falling all over yourselves to see how you can serve your wife. You should be finding as many ways as possible to love your wife, to remind her of your love, to serve her, to say, Honey, what do you want me to do now? Uh, I'm trying, ladies, to butter you up a little bit because I'm going to whack you in just a minute. But I believe that that's what a godly husband should do. <laughs> In no way do I set myself up as an example, but I am constantly trying to find ways that I can help Kathy and serve her and to make her life more comfortable and to cause her to know that I love her with all of my heart. And you know what? Because I've taken that approach in our 28 years of marriage, she has responded to that, and she falls all over herself to see how she can serve my needs. And though our marriage is not perfect, we, constant, we said it this week to each other. We can't believe how happily married we are. How wonderful our life together has been and continues to be. Because I am fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. I am committed. I don't do it perfectly, but I am committed to lead my home in a godly way. To be a godly husband, to be a godly father. And my wife has willingly subordinated herself, according to God's plan, subordinated herself to my leadership. And we are both subordinated to the Lordship of Christ. And Paul says, this is the design of God. Now, I know that there are some who are uncomfortable with these ideas of authority and submission, and I know how foreign it sounds to our modern ears, and I know that there are Bible commentators that do all sorts of mental and theological gymnastics to say that Paul didn't mean what he was saying, he was not talking about head, he was not talking about authority. I don't believe that that's being faithful to a true interpretation of Scripture. I think when Paul was talking about head, he was not talking about source, he was talking about authority. And I believe that a lot of that theological gymnastic that goes on is a desperate attempt at avoiding the implications of the passage that is before us. And that God has built into creation a created order. I would uh, recommend to you, if you want to do further study in this area, it's a massive book. In fact, I think that Empowered has been studying it on Thursday nights. It's a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it is written, co-authored by a great theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem and another theologian, Pastor John Piper. And uh, it is an outstanding, thick volume that explores all of this in far greater depth than I could even get to 
this morning. So Paul in verse 4 says, if a man were to put on his head a covering, a hat or a shawl or whatever, that would be dishonoring to his head. It would be dishonoring to himself and it would be dishonoring to his true head who is Christ. In the same way, a woman who would refuse to wear the covering appropriate to women would be dishonoring her head, her husband. And to underscore that fact, Paul says that for a woman to refuse to wear a head covering as a sign of authority would be a virtual equivalent of having her head shaved. He said, if you're not going to wear a shawl and you're going to wipe out and blur the distinctions, and it's all about gender distinction here, if you're going to blur out the gender distinction, women, then if this is such a big deal to you, women, he kind of ups the ante. He said then shave your head. That's what he said. Shave your head. Uh, Paul knew that those Corinthian women would do no such thing. Because then, as it is now, a a woman's hair is her glory. I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time convincing you of that. Ladies, what kind of things do you go through for the sake of your hair. Uh, when I was last in Wegmans and the local CVS pharmacy, there were entire aisles that were devoted to lotions and potions and sprays and spritzes and mousses and puddings and all sorts of things to make your hair shiny and straighter and crunched and poofed and a different color. I won't ask you how many of you color your hair. Although I think by doing a quick scan, I can tell. So Paul says, if you're going to be going against the tide of God's created order, then woman, go ahead and shave your head. And he knows that the women of his day would never dream of doing such a thing, which is part of his point. And the thing that they would find embarrassing and shameful to do in public, that is walking in the streets of Corinth with a shaved head, is the very thing that they seem to have been doing with no shame in the assembly of God's people with regard to head coverings. In verses 7 through 10, and we don't have time to look at it all, but in a nutshell, Paul provides a supplementary argument that goes back to the earliest biblical writ about creation, Genesis 1 and 2, man being created out of the dust, woman being created, created out of the rib of man. And I think the point that he's making here is that man and woman are both made in the image of God, but men and women are uniquely created, and God had a unique, separate, and distinct role for a man versus a woman. With regard to the man, a man's uniqueness is seen that he was not made from the woman, but the man preceded the woman. It's part of created order and that being and that man was directly made by God from the dust of the ground. Further, Paul makes the argument that it was man who was initially given the task of managing God's creation on his behalf. The woman, on the other hand, her uniqueness is seen in the fact that she was not made from the dust, 
but the woman was made from the man. What's more, a woman's task was to be a helpmeet, a suitable helper to come alongside of the man to assist him in fulfilling the God-given mandates of multiplying God's images and managing the creation. Thus, I think, in Paul's argument to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the created order, the man brings glory to God best when a man is fulfilling his distinct God-given role. And a woman brings glory to, to God best when she acknowledges by her life and her manner and her demeanor that she embraces, doesn't strain against, but she embraces and welcomes the unique role that God has given to woman within God's created order. And when a man faithfully carries out his God-given role and a woman faithfully carries out her God-given role, and while there's a great deal of overlap, they have unique and distinct roles that when a man does his thing and a woman does hers, that it brings the greatest glory to God. And that the symbols of those differences like head coverings and hair length, according to that culture, should not be discarded either. So, at the end of the day, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, yes, there are differences between the genders. God designed them. God put them there. Don't try to rub out the line of distinction between men and women. Women, don't, don't try to look like a man. Men, don't try to look like a woman and put a covering on your head when you pray or prophesy. Let the distinction that God has created in His order celebrate that, welcome that, embrace it. And having made that point strongly, Paul wants to make sure that the observance of gender and role distinctions is kept in place. So what does this mean to the church today? First of all, I think it's important to say what it doesn't mean. Taking this passage seriously does not mean, hear me now, that we're going to have to start issuing head coverings on Sunday mornings or mandating particular maximum or minimum lengths of hair for men or women. It seems to me fairly clear that what this passage is teaching is not that we preserve any particularly culturally conditioned symbols, the symbols that were in the Corinthian culture, but that we would retain the distinction between men and women and that there would not be an effort to blur the lines between men and women. And that men and women should conduct themselves in public worship in such a way that it retains that distinction between men and women. Further, in participating in worship, we should not overthrow those appropriate role distinctions between husbands and wives and men and women in the church. But we should, as a local church, seek to work this out in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Now, let me bring this down to 
right where we live. What's cracking over there? Since Janet's standing up, I'll use her as the illustration. (laughs) Janet is our director of music and worship. There may be some of you uh, who uh, are feeling that a woman uh, should not have those kinds of responsibilities in leadership. But I beg to differ. Uh, Even though uh, Janet's not wearing her hair up and not wearing a shawl over her head, uh, Janet is a woman under authority. Janet voluntarily has submitted herself to the authority and the leadership of her husband, Randy, and has sought to serve her husband and her family. Subordinated to her husband. In addition to that, Janet has voluntarily subordinated herself to her supervisor, Rick. That's important. (laughs) Janet seeks to serve my leadership and the decisions that I make about our worshiping life together. Janet expresses her opinion. I value her input and her ideas. But when the day is done and a hard decision has to be reached, I reach it. And not Janet. She's a woman who's subordinated to my leadership. Further, Janet is subordinated to Christ, the most important of all. She's seeking to live her life for the glory of God with the help of the Spirit. She is exercising the God-given gifts that God has given her in music and worship. And we are blessed as a result of it. And she does it in a manner that's appropriate to our public assembly. She's not a woman out there trying to prove a point, trying to grab control, trying to to kind of push her way in and, you know, kind of uh, do the power plays. No, instead, she truly is a servant and understands God's created design and order. And therefore, I think it's entirely appropriate for Janet to do what she does to the glory of God. Would you agree? No. There, that ought to make you feel puffed up and good today, Janet. So, I think the thing that Paul is saying here, and, and we can continue to discuss this and, and search the Word of God, I think what the Word is saying is, in your lives, in your worshiping life together, as followers of Christ, Remember that in God's created order, there's a uniqueness to man and woman. There's a distinction between man and woman. Make sure that you attend to that. Make sure that you adhere to that. Women don't try to be men. Men don't be women. But instead, embrace this God-given, unique, distinct role that God has for each And when we follow the created order of God in the church, we will find that things work together really well. And I think it's time for the church to stop caving in to the pressures of the world and fearing the criticism of the world saying, oh, look at them, just another male-dominated 
society. Because I think it's time for the church to stand up and say, when we follow God's design, when we follow His plan, God's blessing will be upon it and things will be right. And so the word to the Corinthian church is a word to us today. Let's sort it through and try to figure out how we will apply it in our life together as a body of believers. Stand together and let me pray and we'll be on our way.